The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello, it's the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Later in this week's podcast, I'm at Tate Modern, where a new exhibition of the work of the Bauhaus artist Annie Albers has just opened. We'll hear from the show's curator, from the biographer of a new book about Annie's husband, Joseph Albers, and from the head of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation. For those of you expecting the interview with Rosalie Goldberg that I trailed at the end of last week's episode, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid you're going to have to wait another week. I assure you it will be worth the wait, and it'll definitely be part of next week's podcast. First this week, unless you've been living on the moon, you're probably aware that at Sotheby's Contemporary Art Auction last Friday, Banksy's painting Girl with Balloon was sold for 860000 or just over a million pounds with fees. But then, as soon as the gavel struck, it automatically began shredding. This is the audio from a video put out by Banksy from the moment of truth in the sale room. Inevitably, as Banksy intended, the event met with enormous controversy, and yesterday we recorded a podcast which looked in depth at the rumours and conspiracy theories. Who was the seller? Were Sotheby's in on the stunt? And so on. But then, on Thursday evening, Sotheby's issued a statement, revealing that the piece had been legally designated a new work, and the original bidder has agreed to buy it for the same price it fetched in the sale room. Shortly, I'll discuss the implications with our correspondent Annie Shaw, but first let's go back to the night in question. You'll hear initially from Annie, who was in the salesroom reporting for the art newspaper, and then from Jonathan Chung of Maddox Gallery, who was bidding for the work. Annie, can you tell me about that experience in the salesroom? Yes, um, well, it was one of the most extraordinary things I have seen in um, probably 10 years reporting on the art market. Um, we were in the evening sale, it was the final lot of the sale, so about two hours in, and um, just as the gavel was banging down on this Banksy painting girl with a balloon for what was a record for the artist, this um, alarm started to go off in the corner of the room where the painting was hung. And so that drew everybody's eyes into that into that yeah. corner of the room. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, collect- we were the journalists are positioned on the opposite side. I mean, and what I could see was collectors, you know, dealers, everyone in the room turning and facing. This canvas, which was, you know, this alarm was going off. Everyone's phone was out, you know, classic 21st century reaction. Um, And then what we could see was that the the canvas was beginning to slip out of the bottom of the frame. And as it was coming out of the bottom of this sort of faux gilt, clunky Victorian style frame were this sort of shredded ribbons of, of the canvas. Now, it stopped halfway. Do we know... Was it meant to only shred half of the painting or do we know it was that a fault or did somebody somebody manage to find out a way to stop it? There have been a lot of conspiracy theories in the in the, in the past week. Um, one of the things I've heard from from a dealer, well, from his Instagram account, I haven't been able to get hold of him in person. One dealer who said his client was an underbidder um, says it, it was a fault and that the, that the mechanism f- failed and, and the whole thing was supposed to have been shredded. Others say, you know, conveniently it was supposed to stop there because obviously the actual image is still sort of relatively intact. So it's sort of half shredded, half intact. Um, it, remain, it, it remains an object, and, and we'll come to to this later, it remains an object that potentially is saleable. Yes, exactly. I think, yes, in hindsight, there was, there's definitely, you know, there's an intention that the work exists as, as something else afterwards. So tell me now what the reaction of the Sotheby's staff in the room was. So the, the, as the gavel was banging down, Ollie Barker was on the rostrum and he immediately said, I mean, I didn't overhear this at the time, but there have been plenty of videos of, of, of the incident. And he said as the gavel was coming down, oh, this is a brilliant moment by Banksy, which in hindsight seems very prescient um, and calm and collected in a room full of people who were basically gobsmacked um, and really bewildered at, as to what was going on. An unusual reaction, I thought. And then there were other Sotheby's staff sat, I believe they're Sotheby's staff, um, sat under the painting or sat near the painting. And, and their reaction, and some, some, some of those on the, on the phone bank, their reaction is, is sort of amusement. Um, 
which is a natural reaction, I, I guess, but um, it also sort of slightly rang alarm bells for me. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing is that you can always make an argument that everybody expects surprise with Banksy. He's a prankster. We're used to these kind of um, uh, theatrical staged events and therefore nothing should take you by surprise. So in a way, amusement is one plausible reaction. But yeah. at the same time, a painting was being shredded in the, in the auction room for the first time that anybody can, can, yeah. can remember. Ever. So, yeah. So... Yes, I can see why people might have that might have raised alarm bells. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have to say, after the auction, there's always a press conference, and usually Sotheby's directors are really quick to come out, or the, well, the prices come out, the, the press releases. But we were stood there, me and, and, and the rest of the world's media who were there, um, with a lot of television crews, and we waited for about twenty minutes, and and it was sort of everyone was thinking, what on earth is going on? But when they did finally come out, Alex Branchik did seem, he's the head of uh, Sotheby's Europe, he seemed genuinely flustered and he, he said, you know, the now famous words, we've just been Banksied, or yeah. it would appear we've just been Banksied. Right. But what has Banksy himself said? Banksy himself, he, so, I mean, <laughs> famously elusive, he chooses Instagram as a way, as a mode of, of, of speaking to the people. And he posted straight after the sale, a couple of hours after, a photograph saying going, going, gone, quite simply a picture of the of the incident of the canvas slipping through the frame and being shredded. He then, uh, a few hours later, he posted a video of the stunt. Um, now, this video is shows him supposedly building the shredder into the back of the painting, he says some years ago, on the chance that at one point it might be auctioned. And then the video is a, proceeds to be a sort of a mashup of different scenes from within the auction room as the incident unfolds. Um, so it's not clear whether he's used found footage um, or whether he had several players in the room who he has then sort of recorded the incident through. Right. And we don't yet know exactly how this mechanism was triggered, do we? Right. Well, there was a guy spotted um, in the sale room. There photo there's photographs of him. He's not too um, inconspicuously dressed. He has a white hat and a white scarf and a gold earring. He's dressed in black and wearing sunglasses inside. <laughs> so um, this, this gentleman was photographed with a briefcase. And inside that, there looks to be some sort of wireless router or something, some sort of device that would most likely have triggered this shredding mechanism. Yes. Do we know anything about who consigned the work and what the stipulations were in terms of, you know, was the frame an integral part of the work and therefore could it be inspected? Mm, well, there's been a lot of speculation that Banksy himself consigned the work. I mean, it had to have been someone close to the artist in order to have access to the work in recent, you know, more in, in more recently than 2006. This idea that these batteries would have still been working 12 years later is, is is fanciful. But, I mean, according to Sotheby's catalogue, the provenance says that it was acquired directly um, from the artist by the present owner in 2006. So one of the theories is that um, Banksy's publicist, Joe Brooks, consigned the work. And when I asked Sotheby's about the consigner, they said all they can say is that we they took the work in good faith and they believed the story the consigner gave them about its provenance. We didn't have any reason to think the story and the history of the work was anything other than what was presented to them. And they got a certificate from pest control and they asked the right questions, they say, from pest control. They did their due diligence. So they did, they went to pest control and said, can we... We should explain who Pest Control are. Right, yeah. So Pest Control are Banksy's authentication body. He isn't represented by a gallery. He This is his studio and an authentication body, and he sells directly through them. Um, he's quite an anomaly in that sense. He's one of the only a contemporary artists, really, who doesn't have a gallery. Um, Even though his work is sold by very many galleries. Right. This is, <laughs> I should stress, primary market galleries. His, yes, his, he has. there are many secondary market galleries who sell his work independently of him. Um, so Sotheby's say they went to pest control and they they asked if they could remove the canvas from the frame as is usual um, but they were told flatly no that the, the frame is an integral part of the artwork and to do so would damage the work um, and, and and its value I, I should I think is that is that standard practice I mean there's there are very many artists for whom the frame is part of the work Sure. I mean, most most works that come into auction will be examined um, and, and taken out of their frame. But of course, with contemporary artists, think of Manzoni or Joseph Boys's objects. You know, their 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 cases, their 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 plinths, their frames are integral parts of the work. So it's not not entirely unusual um, to be refused to examine 
a frame. Well, this is a fast, unravelling story. And now we're going to speak to Jonathan Chung from Maddox Gallery, who was one of the unsuccessful bidders in the room. Jonathan, I'd like to begin by just asking a very straightforward question, which is, why did you bid for the work? Sure. Uh, well, I think, um, you know, uh, Banksy's uh, most iconic uh, piece is definitely The Girl with Balloon. Um, it's the most popular image um, the UK voted last year, I believe. And, uh, you know, it was such a, it's such a historic piece. And, uh, you know, to my lo- knowledge, that's the only, you know, one of one out there. Um, you know, and I felt uh, the estimate was very attractive for uh, for us. Um, and, uh, you know, we, um, yeah, that's why we went for it. Can you take us through the efforts you go to to, on the one hand, authenticate the piece, to inspect the piece, all that kind of stuff? I mean, both with Sotheby's and with pest control. Sure. Um, so obviously when uh, when we were made aware the, uh, the lot was coming up for sale uh, with Sotheby's, um, you know, I decided to... Uh, uh, you know, on behalf of Maddox, um, you know, see the work in person. Uh, we, you know, obviously, assisted by a few specialists in uh, in the sale. Um, you know, when I first stumbled across um, the, uh, the Banksy, it was you know, it was very unique in the sense that it was very different to the other um, Girl with Balloon images. Um, you know, varying from editions and um, ed- editions on canvas. Um, you know, the work was very distinctive and it was much more detailed. You could say. Um, is that in the stenciling you mean it was exactly right. yes yes um, and uh, yeah of course you know we had to go through the uh, due diligence and um, you know examining the uh, the piece itself and um, obviously there was uh, you know the frame as well um, but uh, when I I did ask Sotheby's actually um, you know can we remove the uh, the canvas out of the frame and uh, the the first response was the frame is pretty heavy um, and I said you know why is that? And they just basically they just said um, the uh, the, pe- uh, the frame was an integral part to uh, to the canvas, um, and it kind of ended from there. So obviously I asked for the uh, pest control, and um, they gave it, obliged, um, and it all you know worked out. Um, so basically, pest control provide you with a certificate of authenticity. Sotheby's which did. Sotheby's right. did. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this uh, certificate of authenticity, it, it mentions a, it's a dedication on it, but there's it's sort of been blurred out. I mean, uh, it says the, the work was gifted with thanks to, and the name is is, is blurred out. Yeah. So I, I'm interested in whether we believe that this is a work from 2006, either the either the painting itself or. The, f- the painting in the frame. Can you, what do you think? Do you think any part of it is from 2006 or do you think it's a new work? I, it's definitely not a new work. Um, judging by, um, by the piece, it looks, um, you know, pretty, uh, aged pretty well, I'd say. Um, but um, I, no, I, I think it was definitely done in 2006. Um, but the, uh, the most important question, I think, is uh, whether the shredder was installed in 2006. And if it is somebody in Banksy's inner circle, the, sh- the shredder could have been added at a later date. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the work was tipped to, to do well. I mean, it's Go With Blooms, they're the unique works or the sensors on canvas, mm. are rare to come up at, at, at auction. Sure. As you say, it's an iconic image. Um, what did you think of the of the low estimate? Did it ring any bells? Two hundred thousand to three hundred thousand. There was a lot of interest. Can you tell me a bit about what you knew know about who, how many people were potential bidders? Sure. Well, I think um, uh, part of the reason, uh, you know, for the low estimate was, um, I mean, I, I, I asked the same question to Sotheby's as well. Um, you know, why why is the estimate so, you know, ridiculously low? And um, basically, they said, um, you know, to consign us gifted work, um, you know, if they did receive um, hundred thousand pounds, they'll still be happy with it. Um, and uh, hence, you know, that was um, that was the main reason. And uh, um, you know, if, uh, another reason would be to attract um, other uh, serious collectors because I don't think you know Banksy is in the same um, same league as uh, the likes of um, you know Jenny Savile, Mark Rothko, or Mark Bradford. Um, it's just a different category, and um, obviously that would uh, potentially um, attract your classic, more cla- traditional classic collectors. Is, is, is part of the reason that, that, that it could have attracted a low estimate because there are so many other images of Girl with Balloon out there on the market, even if they aren't unique works like this. Can you say something about that there are obviously different forms of Girl, girl with Balloon out there? Sure. Um, well, there are several... Um, <clears throat> beg your pardon. There are several editions. Um, you know, it ranges from um, a screen print on, on paper 
which is a signed edition of 150. There's also a signed edition of uh, 600. And they vary from, you know, 30 to 40,000 pounds to signed ones from 85 to 120,000 um, pounds. You've also got um, but, uh, balloon girls in uh, very colorways with uh, 66 artist proofs. Then you've got um, edition canvas of 25, uh, which goes for about, you know, 350,000 pounds, which is madness. Um, and then what, that went for uh, about 380,000 pounds earlier this year at, um, at Bottoms. And you, in fact, happened to have an edition of Girl with Balloon on sale at Maddox Gallery. Yes, funny enough, we actually do have a dedicated one. Um, it's an outside the edition, uh, Balloon Girl, uh, which we recently sold it for uh, £100,000. Um, so, um, and that's, that's, an, that's, that's from... So it's a dedicated print, but it's part of what, part of the edition of 150? It's outside of the edition. Ah. Um, we've also had um, you know, varied uh, coloured weights as well. Um, you know, we had a we had a pink one actually, and that sold um, that sold fairly recently. Um, so yeah. Um, one of the things that I think some listeners may not be clear on is what market Banksy has established for his work and how much money he has made from these works. Because obviously, we're talking a lot here about the secondary market. Sure. You're dealing with Banksy. <clears throat> Banksy doesn't have a dealer. He uh, deal he he creates his own editions and sells them through pest control mm-hmm. um but for instance if banksy were to produce a new edition of prints now sure how much would he <laughs> sell them for um banksy as an artist i don't think he was ever really um in it for the money um i think that's uh, that's been proven by the fact that um two years ago when pictures on walls um decided to uh, close down um, they released um, Banksy's last edition, which was enti- entitled Sales End. And it was an um, uh, edition of 500 um, signed. Um, they were all, um, it was basically you had to um, enter a, uh, a raffle to, to get the piece. And the raffle was only, um, well, 500 pounds. So, you know, he could have charged 2,000, 5,000 pounds and people would still have, um, you know, paid, uh, paid for the piece. Right. Um, so, um, so, yeah. So he doesn't actively buy his own works and resell them, or pest control don't do that, as far as you know. Um, I, I I wouldn't say he will buy it back, but um, I do believe that they'll you know he'll have some uh, unique works in the studio that pest control may sell to their close clients, um, and that's I think that's always been the case since um, his rise from you know two thousand six to two thousand eight, um, and since then um, the pest control have been very uh, careful of who they sell the works to. I'm very interested in, in I'm very interested in this idea that Banksy isn't in it for the money um and part of me would like to believe that and and mm-hmm. and, and and the more sort of anarchic um project stuff he does project sort of more conceptual sure. um immersive installation style stuff he does you know we meant we talked about Disneyland and of course. um Waldorf Hotel and yet I mean these these I mean it's my understanding the original girl with balloons um was sold for two hundred and fifty pounds a pop back in two thousand and three when they were made the the edition of twenty five mm. um and that's a massive appreciation in value um obviously he's not seeing the returns on the secondary market sales, but it will have a trickle down effect to his primary market sure. i'm just i mean do you think that banks he really doesn't care about the money i mean or, or or is he cashing in at all or is he really sticking his fingers up to the establishment? Well, I do. I mean, he does get um, a certain percentage back um, through secondary market sales, and that's through art of resale rights, um, which allows, I believe, um, from four percent to one percent um, in auction sales. Not um, a lot. Not a lot, but um, <laughs> I think he's sold, you know, a fair, a fair amount. Um, and um, you know, when he sells, you know, works through um, pest control, I think um, it, it's such a small team. Um, so. Um, so yeah, <clears throat> there's been this mass speculation about the value of the work post shredding. Sure, I'd like to ask you first. We Annie and I have talked about it a little bit, but I'm I'm interested in your view. Do you think the fact that it only shredded half of the canvas was an accident or deliberate? Personally, in my opinion, I think that was um, that was. Uh, deliberate um i think it was um it was too perfect if if that makes sense 
um, you know, to stop, you know, halfway through where, you know, the head's just there reaching out for the balloon. Um, I think um, that was uh, that was quite funny, actually, looking back at it. Um, yeah, yeah, it seems it seems almost compositional exactly, where it stopped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. OK. And then that being said, it remains an object. In your view, what has what value does the work have in its shredded state as compared to its original form? Um I know, I know. I mean, I know for a fact that there's been uh, a lot of people talking about how you know this this piece would have gone up by um, you know fifty percent since the shredding, and mm-hmm. I think that's just uh, complete nonsense. Um, you know, I'll find it absolutely. Um, I'll find it very hard to believe that someone out there right now would pay one point five million um, for it. Um, um, I, I, I sort of have a propose. I have a theory as to why the work might be worth more, and it relates to a certain degree to the sort of to the history of autodestructive art and, and sure. the idea of uh, the idea of, in a way Banksy being now more of a performer than a than mm. a kind of graphic artist if you like and I think that I can see the logic which says now Banksy is a much much more about his actions and about his pranks this yeah. work could be seen as being both a kind of happy medium of both image which we know people love and action and therefore you have both the prank and the graphic work contained within a single object and therefore in a way it is even more unique than the paintings and certainly more unique than an editioned painting or the editions on screen prints or the images on mugs or whatever it is and and actually there isn't an enormous amount of difference between the screen the um the stenciled canvas and the and the prints in terms of their technical appearance. So, in a way, this is almost as as unique a Banksy as you can get. Of course, I, I agree with you two as to a certain extent. Um, I and you know in the near future, I don't think it's going to go up in value. But you know, over the next twenty thirty years, sure. Um, I think at the end of the day, art is about it's kind of a fashion trend, you could say. Um, you know, the, um, your classic collector, as I said before, um, you know, in their forties to, you know, up to eighties, um, I don't think they'll buy this. But um, you know, the younger generation, um, you know, uh, after my, you know, our time, um, they'll look at this and they'll be like, "Wow, that is um, this is amazing." Just the way we see, you know, uh, Marcel Duchamp's, um, you know, Lou, which goes for, um, God knows how much. But uh, you know, back in his days in nineteen seventeen twenties, um, that would be laughable. But yeah, I mean, it was yeah, it, it was so insignificant to a market that it was it was the original was lost. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> look at look at uh, you know Vincent Van Gogh for example. Um, you know, at, at his um, back in his era, he was um, a laughing stock. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And now Annie joins me again on the phone this time to talk about Sotheby's statement last night. Annie, can you tell us what's happened overnight? Yep. So Sotheby's last night um, announced that they that the buyer. The winning bidder of the Banksy last week has indeed agreed to finally um, buy the work for the price that it hammered in the room, which is £860,000. Um, what we know is that she's a European female collector and Sotheby's describe her as a long-standing client of theirs. Um, she says that she was initially shocked when the work was shredded, but gradually realised that she would end up with her own piece of art history. Right. And and the important thing is that Banksy has authenticated it or Pest Control, Banksy's company, has authenticated the work as a new work and retitled it. So, yeah, this is one of the interesting aspects. Um, Banksy has renamed the work Love is in the Bin, which some people might feel appropriate. And it's been redated as a, as a new work 20, 2018 and authenticated anew by Pest Control. Sotheby's now says Banksy did not destroy a work of art during its contemporary evening sale. He created one. And I think that's quite an interesting um, aspect to the story. With my critics head on, doesn't this invalidate the whole point of the exercise if we are to believe that the whole point of the exercise was to kind of stick two fingers up to the art market? Isn't this cozying up to the art market? So I suspect there've been. I mean, the, the reason there's been such a delay in 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 the in the announcement of the of the work actually being sold is that there've been all sorts of questions about liability over the past week. We believe that the consigner was Joe Brooks, um, Bub- uh, Banksy's publicist, 
there's an in, the, there's an inscription on the back of the um, authentication certificate, which is dedicated to Joe, reportedly. Um, I've seen a copy of the, the the certificate with the name redacted, but it's it's it's, it's been gifted um, as a thank you for work undertaken on Banksy's barely legal show in LA back in 2006. Banksy, I mean Banksy, sort of took responsibility for the prank by posting it on on Instagram. So it would seem that the consigner, you know, if she says that she was unaware of of, of what was going to happen, she wouldn't have been liable. Sotheby's has said it knew nothing about the, the prank, so they aren't liable. The buyer usually would be bound as the winning bidder to to pay up for the work, but in these circumstances, it was damaged, and and she was well within her rights to to refuse to pay. So it was all a question of who who. Who pays? Who is liable? Um, legally speaking, and so basically, Banksy is uh, would uh, basically have had to have paid a million pounds, or you know, the eight hundred sixty thousand plus fees, if he was found to be liable for a damaged work of art or corrupted work of art. Yeah, exactly. I think that would. I mean, this is speculation, but that would be one implication. And the fact that he has. Um, renamed and reauthenticated the work would would suggest that he has accepted some liability um, in term financial liability as much as he has taken responsibility and held it you know and 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 and, and quite you know loudly proclaimed the stunt to have been his. There may well be more twists and turns in the story, but for the moment, Annie, thank you very much. Thank you. Make sure you follow all the developments on this fast-moving story at theartnewspaper.com. In the early years of the 19th century, the Sikh Empire was a byword for opulence. The Royal Treasury at Lahore bulged with riches, and its craftsmen produced bespoke items for use at court. So when Maharaja Ranjit Singh, Lion of Punjab, needed a ceremonial quiver to wear at the wedding of his eldest son and heir, Karak, in 1838, he ordered it from the Treasury workshops. The exquisite leather quiver and bow holder was embroidered with gold thread and clad in velvet, Later owned by Lord Dalhousie, Governor-General of India, the quiver comes to Bonham's Islamic and Indian sale in London on the 23rd of October. According to department head Oliver White, it was rarely worn and it looks as fresh as the day it was made. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Next year marks the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus, the revolutionary school of art, architecture and design established by Walter Gropius in Weimar in Germany in 1919, one of the great crucibles of modernism. Annelise, or Annie Fleischmann, was one of its students and met her husband Joseph Albers at the Bauhaus. Eventually she became the director of its weaving workshop, two years before it closed in 1933 as Hitler rose to power. Albers fled to the United States with Joseph and taught with him at the hugely influential Black Mountain College, as well as pushing her work in ever more ambitious directions. A first ever UK retrospective of her work is now open at Tate Modern, whose director Francis Morris hailed the exhibition as a sign of the gallery's commitment to expanding the displays of modernism, not only geographically, but in terms of media. Textile art will now be crucial in Tate Modern's programming. I went to Tate Modern to talk to Bryony Fair, the exhibition's co-curator, and also to Nicholas Fox Weber, the director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation, which looks after the artist's estates. Bryony, we're in the Bauhaus room. Tell me about Annie in the Bauhaus, because it wasn't easy to be a woman artist at the Bauhaus, was it? I think that moment of the Bauhaus when Annie Albers enters as a student, when um, she's a young woman in 1922. There are several other women at the Bauhaus, but they do all end up in the weaving workshop. Annie Albers herself um, was at that point, I think, aiming somewhere slightly different. But she really became immersed in weaving in a way that I think alongside several other of the the women artists in the weaving workshop like Gunther Stotzel and Otti Berger they made weaving absolutely central to their version of the modernist project so I think that's a huge contribution partly recognized in the way in which the Bauhaus and the Bauhaus legacy is thought about but maybe still not recognised enough. What's interesting is she goes in... Essentially, she wanted to be a painter, is that right? Yes, absolutely. Um, but 
it's really important to understand, as you say in your essay, that she's not just imposing a sort of painterly idea on, on the loom. Absolutely not. I mean, she is taught by Paul Clay. She really admires Clay. She really admires Kandinsky. And she aims to, in a way, be an artist. Um, but she uses weaving. I think she understands weaving, even as she's learning the technique of being a weaver. She understands the kind of structure, the construction of weaving, which is obviously fundamentally based on the grid, the construction, the apparatus, let's call it, of the loom, is fundamentally a 3D grid. And I think implicitly that's what they understand, that's what they internalise. So they're not imposing a modernist grid or trying to make weaving look like clay. They're using the process to, in a way, act out the grid through the weaving process, I would say. And does weaving, as a result, become more central to the sort of Bauhaus idea? Is, is it, does it become a more important medium as a result of these pioneering techniques that, that Annie and others are using? Yes, I think... I mean, there's always that tension at the Bauhaus, isn't there, between, you know, depending on the various directors, from commitments to craft on the one hand through to technology on the other. But in a way, the great point, I think, of the Bauhaus is the collapsing of these different categories, art, technology, craft... And I think weaving is a means to do that, but by no means the only means. I mean, I think in some ways, at the time, weaving is one means among many. It's where most of the women um, artists are working, um, not exclusively, but mainly. And I think you couldn't say that weaving is, at that point, raised to this, you know, the height of its... Its status, I think, runs alongside um, metalwork, um, other forms of design. But I think with hindsight, looking back now and looking at the role of textiles um, over the course of 20th century art and design history, we can see its extraordinary kind of central importance to that Bauhaus aesthetic, that Bauhaus way of working, Bauhaus way of thinking. So we're going to go into the next room. Okay, so we're now in the biggest space in the show. Uh, and I have to say, it's a, it's a stunning light space, which is full of, on the one hand, works on the wall, but, but lots of hanging works. Um, can you explain the sort of purpose of this room in terms of how it explains Annie's working methods and, and um, an approach to textiles? Well, as you say, this is the largest space divided by a kind of semi-transparent partition. Um, we've worked with designers, played, um, to try and transform the spaces to be conducive to her work and show it at its best. And in one end of this large space, we have her so-called pictorial weavings. And Annie Albers herself called them pictorial weavings because she did want them to hang on the wall as an artwork, but at the same time be absolutely something woven, something um, textured, something tactile, something haptic. They're often very intricate. They almost... She begins to make pictorial weavings in the 30s and through 40s, 50s, this is the period when she's really developing her uh, pictorial weavings. The variation is is striking from close, tight to open, loose, almost transparent um, textures. And I think that... In some ways, you see her experimenting with the possibilities of weaving, the formal and structural possibilities of weaving. If you look closely, which we're inviting you to do in this room, 
they can feel a little bit like the intricacy of a clay painting, um, but also not like a clay painting. But I think that kind of sense of looking into this kind of world of textures is absolutely something that the work invites. All around us in this part of the exhibition are the hanging works. And what I'm really conscious of is that we're seeing space defined by textile. And this was Mm. incredibly important to Annie, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, this room or part of this room for me is hugely important. It's probably the least known aspect of her, her work. We've really researched hard to be able to show these collaborations she did with architects, many of them the Bauhaus architects. And of course the Albers moved to the United States as the Bauhauses closed down um, in 1933. And so they go to work at Black Mountain. But all those other Bauhaus masters also go, Gropius, Breuer, Maholinage and so on. And some of the projects in this room show her ongoing relationship with those key Bauhaus figures, the way in which she would work, for example, with Gropius on the textiles for the Harvard dormitories for the law faculty. And so we've tried to show and demonstrate how her experimental approach to weaving could also transform everyday life and be part of everyday environments. The key works in this room for me are certainly the room dividers. And Annie Albers actually made the room dividers, which are these um, hanging screens that were designed to partition spaces. She actually made them for her 1949 exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, instigated by the architect, her friend Philip Johnson, with whom she would also work on various collaborations. And in some ways she makes them for that exhibition of her work. That was her first solo retrospective, in fact. So they were almost prototypes. There are several more of them, and in some respects I think you could see them working almost as part way between her pictorial weavings and her work in textiles. When you look closely, have also this mixture of different kinds of fibres, different weaving constructions, they're semi-see-through and they were designed to be prototypes for different ways of partitioning space again very much part of that modernist project to make architecture and space porous and organic so using in a way the geometric ideas that she brought with her but in a way there's something extremely organic about the way they 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 change space and change the spaces we we live in I feel like we ought to speak in a sort of quieter voice in this room because actually it's a, it's a solemn room which features a work which was commissioned by the Jewish Museum. It's a commission from the Jewish Museum in New York and it was a commission for a Holocaust memorial. This is a, a rare chance to see this work that's been... Um, has been very little exhibited. It was exhibited in the first showing of this exhibition in Dusseldorf at K20. But I think it shows her thinking on a much larger scale than we might have expected and using some of these ideas about uh, writing and pictographic forms and hieroglyphic forms to imagine a, a, a monument in textile a monument that's actually haptic as well as optical. You can really feel those textures. It consists of six panels. In some ways it looks almost to me like a, an answer or a counter to Barnett Newman in some respects. Um, here they're hung very closely together, but they could be hung slightly further apart in different contexts. But it's as if they're six prayer rolls. And she's using and drawing on certain um, conventions, 
um, within the Jewish tradition. It's the one instance in her work where we see her really in engaging with the question of Jewishness. I mean, she is a Jewish woman. Uh, Joseph Albers was not Jewish, but you know, obviously this was the reason why not only the closing down of the Bauhaus, but why it was essential for the Albers to, to leave Germany. But in a way, it's... Um, she said she was Jewish only in the Hitler sense, which is a kind of chilling way to put it. But, but they, are yeah. they are secular, modern Jews. But yeah. her, it, this is an extraordinary work, and I think it shows there are other projects that she did for synagogues, and there's a really very forward-thinking architectural movement in synagogue design, which she's also kind of part of. That's a modern architect architectural movement um, and this in a way you could see in this context what I think is really interesting about it is the way in which these there's something very abstract about the script and the scriptural nature of it but it's deliberately illegible you know it's not as if we're invited to read the message. I think the idea that it's, there's something really illegible and incomprehensible about this as a monument, rather than a monument that tells you exactly what it is that it's about. It's a very enigmatic work. Um, it has these um, metallic threads again, so it has an almost kind of mystical contemplative effect. Um, so yes, a much quieter space in the exhibition to really look long and hard, I think. So we're now in a room called On Weaving, which is a very important room in the show because as well as being a textile artist, Annie was a textile historian. So can you explain what you were trying to do in this, in this room? This um, room, for me, is really the heart of the exhibition. We called it to ourselves as we were making this <laughs> exhibition over a couple of years, um, Anna's brain. Because <laughs> what we wanted to do was to look at her book on weaving that she writes, it's published in the 60s, and it is, as you say, a global history of weaving over 4,000 years, as well as a textbook of weaving constructions and a theory of weaving. What we wanted to do was to show almost the inside of Annie Alba's head, to show the kinds of resources that she was working with, which of course is not just the normal story of modern art that you know, goes back in art historical terms to the middle of the 19th century or whatever, but within the weaving context goes back 4,000 years. And what it is to imagine a, a modernist project that has that much longer history looking as she and Joseph Albers did absolutely crucially to other parts of the world, particularly Latin America, but what we were really, really insistent on is we didn't want to represent this as a, another kind of universalizing primitivism, as if they're simply appropriating the art of the whole world and putting it on a sort of, you know, ahistorical plane, but to show how seriously she engaged with the weaving cultures on a global scale. So just to give the work and to give modern art a different global perspective. So in this room we have wonderful uh, loans, not only from, for example, the, the collection from the Albers Foundation, the collection of mainly Latin American and pre-Columbian weavings that the Albers themselves collected in Mexico, Peru and so on but also they were responsible for collecting this extraordinary Mexican sarape um, that's actually late 19th, early 20th century so we also wanted to show that these other modernities exist, you know Mexico is a modern place and they go to Mexico over 14 times and they're very involved in that 
modern city that's Mexico, as well as these much more ancient fragments from uh, Africa. Uh, we have some Coptic fragments that we've borrowed from the British Museum, the Victoria and Albert, that are very similar, very, very close to the works that she illustrated in On Weaving. So her knowledge was extensive. It wasn't just, you know, some exotic other. She really understood the specificity of these different weaving cultures. And we felt it was incredibly important. It's, it's also part of, relates to the way in which Tate shows a kind of global geography of, of art, that this is a real sort of model for that, in, in a sense. Bryony, thank you very much for this wonderful talk. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. After speaking to Bryony, I spoke to Nicholas Fox Weber, the director of the Joseph and Annie Albers Foundation. Nick, I'd like to talk to you about Annie Albers, the person, and I think you feel that there's a way of doing this by talking about the two works we're standing in front of now, which are called Development in Rows 1 and Development in Rows 2. I'm focusing on Development in Rows for a very particular reason. I met Annie when I was... 22 years old and what year was this this was 1970 and I was a graduate student in art history at Yale I was totally captivated by her as a human being as I was by Joseph Annie met you in the eyes she was a hundred percent present and she was very difficult in the eyes of most people but I having been brought up by a very difficult woman who was a painter, was at ease around smart, difficult people, uh, just totally comfortable and knew that underneath a facade of toughness there could be um, a great deal of warmth. And, and so this person who intimidated other people didn't intimidate me. And I became intrigued with her art and almost immediately went to the Art Institute of Chicago. The Alberts lived in Connecticut, but I went to the Art Institute of Chicago because I knew that they owned um, beautiful weavings by Annie. I was with my older sister, and we saw this piece, and I flipped out, and I still flip out looking at it because as I told Annie, I know nothing about weaving. Uh, I do not know how to sew a button onto a shirt. She made a miniature loom for me just so that I could understand the simple process of weaving. But when I saw development in Rose, I saw a quality of abstract art, a vitality, an energy, a use of color that I associate with artists like Paul Clay, and Kandinsky more than anyone else. Now, Annie told me that Kandinsky said, there's always an and. It was very much like Annie to remember that, to quote it, and if you look at this weaving, there's always an and. There's always something more happening. And she said of Paul Clay, who was the form instructor of the weaving workshop in the Weimar Bauhaus, and that he talked to her about taking a line for a walk. And Annie's decision was to take thread wherever she could. Well, look at what she's done with thread. Endless surprises, spontaneity, playfulness, and so on. I went back from that trip to Chicago, and I told her how I felt about her as an artist. I subsequently bought a weaving by her, and I wasn't and I'm not someone who had the money to do that sort of thing, but I managed, um, because of a summer job teaching tennis, to have enough money to buy an Annie Albers weaving. This amused her considerably. But I knew that there was a development in rows one. And this, of course, is development in rows two. <laughs> and it must have been 30 years ago, because Annie was still alive when this happened, we were organizing an exhibition of her work at the Smithsonian. 
at the Renwick Gallery, and I wanted to find development in Rose One. And I knew that Annie had given it to a very close professional colleague of hers and Joseph's um, named Sewell Silman. And so I approached Sewell Silman, but I also knew that the Alberses had had a tremendous schism with Sewell Silman. Now, there are two sides to every schism. I'm not always on the Albers' side, but this is a schism where I knew a lot, and I'm very much on their side. And it's just been written about again in a biography of Joseph Albers being published by Thames and Hudson, written by Charles Darwin, where I don't like the way the schism is handled. It's only the other point of view, and he didn't put in the Albers' point of view. In any case, there was a schism. And I knew that, but I still called Cy, as Sewell Silman was known, because I wanted to borrow um, development in Rose 1 for the exhibition at the Renwick, part of the Smithsonian. And he wouldn't take my calls. So I asked a mutual associate, Carol Janis, son of the art dealer Sidney Janis, um, who had worked with Cy Silman because Cy had always installed Joseph Albers's shows at the Janus Gallery. Now we go over to development in rows one, the quarry of my desperate attempt to locate it, and Cy replied to Carol Janus, I no longer own the work, and I hate Annie Albers so much that I'm not going to give you any idea where it is. Well, Ben, I had never in my life heard of anything like that. I'd never heard of somebody, in essence, kidnapping an artwork, keeping an artwork out of the public. What you may find even odder is that I told Annie the story because Annie was someone who was fascinated by feuds. She knew she had enemies. And there were other feuds, and we talked about them very openly. I mean, we were that close that not only could I tell her the story, but I knew there was something about her where it fascinated her. It intrigued her. It, it gave her a sort of excitement. There was a moment when... Sorry, I'm talking a lot, but there was a moment when... Um, Maximilian Schell and I almost got into fisticuffs um, and I thought she was going to jump up and down with excitement. She just, <laughs> she liked scenes somehow. <laughs> anyway, um, we knew we couldn't get the work from Cy, so I put an ad in Art News and I simply said, we are looking for the following missing works by Annie Albers. This was one of three. Within a week, some people in either Larchmont or Mamaroneck, New York, got in touch and said that they had bought the piece Development in Rose 1 at an auction. I don't know where. I don't know the circumstances. I didn't care. Yes, they would consider selling it to the Albers Foundation. I hopped into my MGB, and I say it's an MGBGT, which is part of the story, because Joseph Albers loved that car. He said that the hatchback was perfect for transporting art that wasn't too big. It was carpeted. And he was he a practical had, man. He was a practical <laughs> man. So I hopped into my MGBGT with a colleague named Kelly Feeney. We drove to this house in a New York suburb. This piece was in the sunroom, unfortunately faded, mm. as you can Very see next to when you see it next yeah. to that. And I knew that it was faded the minute I saw it. But I had the Albers Foundation checkbook with me. Um, the Alberses and money are a subject in themselves because they knew the extremes of wealth and poverty to an unusual extent. I wrote a check for $25,000, which Annie thought excessive. I did not think it was excessive, and came home with this. And now, in this extraordinary exhibition, so beautifully put together by Briani and Anne, 
such a sensitive installation. For the first time, these two works are side by side. Nick, thank you so much. Annie Albers is at Tate Modern until the 27th of January. And a new biography of Joseph Albers, Annie's husband, has just been published by Thames and Hudson. I'm joined by Charles Darwin, the author of Joseph Albers' Life and Work, now. Charles, I'd like to begin by talking about Joseph and Annie. Can you tell me something about their relationship? Their backgrounds were very different for a start. Yeah, so Annie, Annie was the nearest thing that, that Jewish Germany came to aristocracy. So her mother, Toni Allstein, was a... Um, from the Ulstein dynasty of, of publishers. They published things like the Berliner Zeitung and they published All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, quite a serious family. Um, but they really made their money by publishing um, sewing patterns, Schnittmuster. Isn't that oh, rather wonderful? Yeah, that's where the real money was. So she grew up with an Irish uh, governess and, you know, butlers and nannies and all that kind of stuff. Joseph's father was a decorationsmaler, which is, you know, a house painter, really, a kind of glorified house painter. And he grew up in Bottrop, which, if you were going to invent a name for Bottrop, would be Bottrop, in fact. It's um, a really ugly but sweet coal mining town. And there's this sort of intriguing thing that that absolutely stood him in really good stead for the Bauhaus. And in fact, didn't mm. Gropius say, well, you don't need to learn about wall painting because you've kind of got the skills? No, I don't mean to be disagreeable, but just the opposite. In fact, he was told he had to learn about uh-huh. wall painting. He was furious because he said, I've been, you know, your father was an architect. What do you know about wall painting? My father was a wall painter and I've been painting walls since, you know, I was knee high. But Gropius said, either you do the wall painting workshop or you leave. So with, I imagine, very bad grace, which he was very good at, Joseph went into the wall painting workshop. Can you describe something about what life in the Bauhaus was like for Joseph and the other artists? Yes, certainly in Weimar. It was very, you know, before they built what we, I imagine we all think of as the Bauhaus, which was in Dessau, the big white building. Um, You know, they slept on straw mattresses and they hauled their own coal. It was very, very poor. Germany, largely post-First World War, you know, a a lot of hunger. So for Joseph, probably not not so worrying because he'd grown up in a sort of lower middle class family in in the Ruhr. But for Annie, it must have been you know there was there was no no nobody bringing her sort of warm buttered crumpets in bed and <laughs> sort of early on. But and, she dealt with it. And yeah. and what what kind of program artistic program did they embark on once they were at the Burr House? Well, Joseph, um, you know, you had to do this thing called the four course, which was the the, the preliminary course that he ended up teaching, in fact, for, for 10 years so um, and, and running. Um, she was, of course, not allowed as a woman to do anything that was uh, regarded as heavy, according to Gropius. And this, for some bizarre reason, I've never understood, included painting. You know, so they were, you're allowed to be a potter, but you weren't allowed to do ironwork or furniture making or, or carpentry of any kind because you might get splinters, you know. But, um, yeah, so that infuriated her. So she was pushed into weaving, really. That was what girls were allowed to do. And it did... Joseph develop what might be characterised as a style in the Bauhaus period? Very much, yes. I mean, I always think that he is the, he is the ultimate Bauhaus artist. So whereas Paul Clay and Vasily Kandinsky are artists at the Bauhaus, I think Joseph really got Gropius's project, which was to, you know, the, as the name Bauhaus building house suggests, that building was to be at the centre of it. And he made art that looked potentially as though it was windows. I mean, he made all his art at the Bauhaus, every single bit of it in glass. And how much of that survives? Because it's it, it, one of the things about the Bauhaus is we know so much about the learning, we know so, mm. so much about the, we know a lot about the personalities, we know about a lot about the teaching. Mm-hmm. But very many of those objects, because of because of Nazism arriving in 1933, Absolutely. very soon after. It, yes, Joseph was furious because his his work wasn't included in the um, in the Antarctica Kunst, you know, the Degenerate Art Show. He was he was <laughs> enraged. Um, he took, when you know they left for America in 1933, he took 32 of his glassworks with him. 11 was smashed en route. But um, he, I mean, they still exist. Well, you know, one of them is owned by Jasper Johns, oddly enough, um, via Robert Rauschenberg. Um, but yeah, so, so some 20 some odd of them still exist. And he was very proud of them. And in his first years in America, they were the only works of his that could get shown. 
And was he adopted immediately by American? Co- so, so, so the Bear House mm. was forced to close. close that's right. Yeah. Uh, and 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 he and Annie headed for America. Actually, that's they right. wanted to go to the Czech Republic. Is that right? They did. That's right. Yes. And then and when the letter came from Philip Johnson, they didn't. They'd never heard of North Carolina, which is where they were going, and they apparently poured over an atlas looking in the Philippines to see if that's where it was. But um, it turned out not to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but so they they headed for the states. Yeah. And, and found themselves in what actually became an enormously influential school. Yes, absolutely. Black Mountain College. I mean, I think I, I, this may be a fancy on my part, but because um, because Joseph couldn't speak uh, English really at all when he arrived, um, somebody described him as, as wonderfully inarticulate. Um, and so he was forced to teach with his hands. And there are these photographs of him, and you can't really tell whether it's a, a dance class by Merce Cunningham or an art class by Joseph Albers. And I don't think it's it's any coincidence that that really what we think of as interdisciplinarity, as they say these days, you know, um, that it really begins to some extent at uh, at Black Mountain College, and I think part of it is to do with the fact that Joseph has to has to gesture everything rather than say it. Can you say something about the culture there? Because there were a number of people teaching there who mm. were seminal figures in the twentieth century, yes, indeed, but yeah. also there were a number of great students. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, the, I can't remember who the, the nasty uh, New York curator who said, "I like Mr. Hitler. He um, he shakes the apple tree, and I pick up the apples." I mean, it was full of emigre um, people like Stefan Volpe, Joseph, and Annie, and so on. Sort of really big European names who had to get away for one reason or another, mostly because they were Jewish. Um, and so it became a little redoubt of of European culture at a time in American. The, sort of the word the American avant-garde was pretty much a contradiction in terms. You know, it was a very important uh, transplantation of, of, if that is a word, of um, European modernist culture into America. Yeah. And who were the who were the students that that Joseph and Annie were teaching at that time? I guess the most famous would be Robert Rauschenberg, wouldn't it? Who um, I I always think Rauschenberg was a bit of a phony because he was denied that that Albus had any influence. But his mat- you know, Joseph sort of pioneered these things called matière lessons, where people were asked to to bring really to work with um the way that things looked and felt that that strange kind of combination of the visual and the haptic and i think if you look at at um rauschenberg's combines they're, they're from the, you know rauschenberg later said whenever i get lost in my art i think what would professor albers do and i do exactly the opposite <laughs> um but i think he was fibbing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um what about joseph's own work then in in the american period the most yeah. famous is and uh, the work in a way which emblematizes mm-hmm. his, his, what he what he achieved in his career is Homage to the, to the square. square. Yes, absolutely. It's an extraordinary mm. project. Can you explain yes. how deep it goes and what he was trying to do? Well, um, very possibly no. I, don't, I, mean, I, can, <laughs> I can certainly tell you that he claimed to have destroyed more than he made and that some 2,300 remain made over a 26-year period. So in my fancy, because he made them in a series of very small studios in his basement um, in the first little um, frame house that they lived in and in a slightly bigger studio, in the, in the slightly bigger house, um, I imagine that maybe he made one a day. I don't know if it became a sort of... One thing I discovered in researching him was that he was a very devout Roman Catholic and whether there was a sort of... You know, whether it was in some way he saw it as a sort of... Um, oh, I don't know. Um, what is that man called? You know, Loyola. Whether it was an Ignatian exercise in some way. Whether he saw it as in some way devout, I don't know. But certainly it's to do with ideas of of transcendence. So the the paintings of rescue quite often he rescues ugly colors and paintings help each other. They're very you know so a sort of rather muddy brown will be lifted by a red or you know the 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 deeply moral work. I think he was a deeply moral man. And and his color classes um particularly at Yale where he went after Black Mountain mm-hmm. College have mm-hmm. become uh, seminal in terms of art teaching. Yes. The artist Michael Craig Martin recently told me that that he he only understood colour when he went back to thinking about the classes he learned at Yale, which were based on, on Albert's on, yes, ideas. A, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I suppose you know it all. It all culminated in inter, in interaction of colour. His great work that is still in print and now is an app and is in its sort of millionth edition or something, and um, and is still I think taught widely and and used in art schools now, um, sixty five years after it was. Uh, after it came out. So, I mean, that, that is extraordinary, really. 
was there a sense in which Joseph and Annie really supported each other in their artistic inquiries, in their general lives? Yeah, I think the, I mean, when you look at their work, there is this definite kind of tennis match and you you see it kind of, uh, the influence going back and forth and they discover things. At, so, for example, that when they went to the to Weimar, they discovered the modernist grid at the same time in different forms. So in the form of the loom, hymn of sort of wire mesh that he used in his early glass works. Um, and then they discover Mexico together. And that that's an extraordinary moment. They didn't make any work together apart, I think, from Christmas cards. There wasn't ever a kind of Joseph and Annie project. But you can see this sort of mutual influence and this sort of back and forth. Um, Certainly in the images of cities, mm-hmm. it seems to me that, that if you were to sort of zone in on works that, that had the most in common, there's a, there's a, a, a work by Annie in the Tate Modern Show mm-hmm. called, called City, one of the rare works which actually names what it's, what yeah. it's of. Yes, yes. Uh, and then, of course, City by, uh, by Joseph, Joseph is, is yes. a tremendous image and so influential in terms of what came afterwards. And Absolutely. And I, I, I was, my eye was caught yesterday when, when I was looking at it by... I, can't remember the name because I can't remember my own name. Um, but it's, um, <laughs> he made a series of glassworks called Fenster or Window, and that was that was a very playful Joseph moment because he was making things that looked like windows and were called windows, but of course weren't windows. And she had made a um, a wall piece in the same year that was so clearly um, working with that same image and that same idea, you know, of did, trans- you know, solid transparency. Did you get the sense that their conversa- that they had sort of intellectual debates amongst themselves? I mean, it's so, it's so difficult <laughs> to speculate about 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 two people who are intimately connected as as a married couple, but yes. also great leaders in in terms of the modernist project. Yes, that's a that's a really interesting question. I you know that Black Mountain largely because they wore the same clothes. You know, they only dressed in white. They were known as the, the two, only two members of a single species. Um, and certainly they thought in the same way, I think. Whether they sat down over their eggs in the morning and and talked about this kind of stuff, I would I would have thought not. I th- I think they just they watched each other a lot and watched each other's work and and I I think they just sort of understood each other, really. Do you think we've obviously <clears throat> Obviously, one of the contentions of the Tate Modern Exhibition is that that we're only now beginning to grasp the the full breadth and um, power of Annie's mm. work. Is there a discovery still to be made of Joseph's work in the same way? Ah, oh, um, he certainly hasn't had. I mean, it's all. It must have annoyed him mightily, and it's somehow inexplicable. That you know, a Robert Rauschenberg will sell now quite happily for forty million dollars, but a Joseph Albers only sometimes breaks the million dollar mark. Um, and I think perhaps that's to do with um, his profligacy. I mean, I think if you make two thousand three hundred homages to the square, or, or perhaps four thousand six hundred or more, because he did get people. He got friends of a um, the sons of a friend to come in and light bonfires in the garden of the last house and burn work. Um, he always said. You know, he felt cleaner when he destroyed his work than when he went to confession, which is, you know, a kind of strange uh, thing. But yes, I mean, I, I, I think that question still hangs over him. Is you know, is this art? I mean, you know, the, 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 that dreadful question. Um, I think a lot of people really just because there's so many homages and its homages largely define him, find it find it difficult to understand. Um, so yes, in that sense, I think I don't I don't think he's really as understood as he should be, or as or as appreciated really. Although that's changing. Well, I think your book will help people learn much more about this intriguing figure, Charles. Yes. Thank you so much for joining me. All right, thank you, Ben. Joseph Albert's Life and Work is published by Thames and Hudson. It's out now, and it's priced twenty four ninety five in the UK. And that's all for this week. Please subscribe to the podcast and you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. Or you can follow us on our main Twitter account and Facebook at The Art Newspaper. And our Instagram is theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to all our guests and to you for listening. Join us again next week when we will, I promise, have an interview with the great Rosalie Goldberg about her new book on performance art. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.